Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics Part 6 Crime Drama Series 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and the purpose of these 12 episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC Comics has produced in its 80 year history, but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superheroes, or stories that are not as widely celebrated as usually what winds up on a top 10 list. Last time around, I looked at stories starring gorillas. This time around, I'm going to turn my attention to crime dramas. Specifically, I'm going to take a look at the 1988 miniseries Cinder and Ash. It's all part of a huge podcast crossover called the Conway Crossover. More on that crossover, as well as the series, right after this. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars War story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the iTunes store. And we're back. So if you haven't been keeping up with comics news, some controversy recently erupted between comics legends Jerry Conway and DC Comics over whether or not he should be compensated for characters he created that are now showing up in other media, such as television and film. This largely stemmed from a discussion as to who actually created Caitlin Snow, a character on the Flash television series who shares an alter ego with the Firestorm villain Killer Frost. Conway created Killer Frost and thought it was entirely possible that he should get some sort of equity payment. When DC more or less shut him out, Conway took to Tumblr and wrote about it, causing a bit of a, wait for it, firestorm on the comics internet. About a week before this episode is scheduled to come out, Rob Kelly and the irredeemable Shag had Mr. Conway on their podcast, The Fire and Water Podcast. On that episode, Mr. Conway explained creator equity, how that system works, and the miscommunication that was at the heart of his current problem. If you're interested in knowing more about that, I highly suggest listening to that episode. Rob and Shag did an outstanding job interviewing Mr. Conway, and I felt incredibly informed when I finished it. 
Now, what am I doing here? Well, this episode is part of the Conway Crossover, a series of several shows and several different podcasts that are meant to bring about more attention to Jerry Conway's larger body of work and to celebrate his long and storied comic book writing career. Since this series is about DC Comics that are outside the norm, you know, the realm of superheroes, I'm looking at Cinder and Ash, which was released in the first part of 1988, with issue number one hitting comic stands on January 12th, issue two on February 9th, issue three on, on March 15th, and issue four on April 12th. Each issue was suggested for mature readers and was offered in what DC then referred to as its deluxe format, meaning that it was printed on Baxter paper and retailed for $1.75 an issue. Our creative team for all four issues is as follows. Jerry Conway is the writer. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is the artist. Joe Orlando is on colors. Augustin Moss is letters. And Pat Bastien was the editor. We open New Orleans on a spring night. The narration tells us that the, on spring nights, the city is like the lovely lady taking an evening stroll. New Orleans, she's at her best on a warm spring night. Cool, but with a hint of warmth to come. The lady we've been watching and someone in a car has been watching takes stroll through the part of an open part of a locked gate and comes across your generic motorcycle gang, because this is an 80s comic, who is there to collect some money that she is carrying. She delivers the money. They deliver it a bruised and battered woman who seems, well, she's, she's not conscious. The person watching the girl starts his engine. We see the girl spring into action, taking out several of the thugs. The car bursts through the gate. The girl gets in, and they're out safe. The girl's name is Cinder. The guy driving the car is Ash. And they are a team working together as private investigators. They show up at the client's house. He wants to see the girl they rescued, and he's ticked off, poking Ash, who doesn't take kindly to that and breaks his finger. Ash says that they'll let the lawyers take care of it because it's obvious that Kaplan, our client, is just as harmful to the woman as the thugs they rescued her from were. Cinder and Ash head back to their place for the night, and their desire for a good night's sleep is interrupted by a man named Wilson Starger. Wilson Starger who has come by referral from a friend of theirs named D'Angelico. He's from Iowa, and he tells them a story about how things are going very wrong for him lately. He's a dairy farmer, and he discovered about a month ago that half his herd was poisoned, then his wife had a heart attack, then the feed and grain store cut his credit, the bank called in his loan, and then the previous Sunday he was roughed up by a bunch of people he didn't know while his wife received a get-well card from her sister, who had died ten years ago. He knows he's being squeezed, he's not sure by whom, and it's gotten worse. His daughter, Jennifer, a student at Tulane University, has been kidnapped. He's come to our team because she disappeared from her dorm room at Tulane, and D'Angelico says that if anyone will be able to find her, it's them. They take the case, and as they are standing on the front porch saying goodnight to Starger, someone starts shooting at them from afar. Cinder manages to get Starger to safety, and as she looks up, she catches a glimpse of the gunman. Lacey, she says. This begins a flashback. Saigon, April of 1975. Lacey says he's going to kill her. We're back in the present as Cinder and Ash chase Lacey through the streets of New Orleans. Ash says that's nuts because he put a bullet in Lacey's head himself. Cinder knows it's him, and she's enraged. Ash puts his hand on her shoulder and tells her not to worry. He's here. He will never leave. 
This triggers another flashback as we see a baby cinder with her parents, a black GI and a Vietnamese woman, in 1963. She implies that her father left sometime after. In 1968, it was her mother as during the middle of the Tet Offensive, she's screaming for mommy while an American soldier carries her to safety. She sees her mother cry out, and then her mother is killed in an explosion. Cinder is taken away to a U.S. Army mobile hospital and is in shock. We then fast forward to 1972, where she's living in the streets as a pickpocket and runs afoul of a couple of street thugs who begin beating her up for stealing. An American takes care of them and offers her safety. He asks her what her name is, and she says, Cinder. That guy is Lacey, the guy they're chasing, and we are now back in the present. Both of them chased after him, and Ash has one of his own flashbacks, remembering how he was the one in 1968 who rescued Cinder from that explosion, and he swears that this time he'll kill Lacey for sure, especially after what he did to her. Our next flashback is to the spring of 1975. As the world comes apart in Saigon, Lacey runs the local drug trade, and Cinder continues to pickpocket, this time swiping money from Lacey's clients. She remembers how she how she did so yet again and headed back to the bar where she chatted with a local prostitute. Lacey shows up, asks for the money, and Cinder says she didn't get all of it. Lacey doesn't believe her and goes ballistic, slamming her head against the bar and accusing her of stealing the money. The prostitute, Khan, tells him to leave her alone because she's just a kid. Lacey presses, eventually getting the money. Cinder heads upstairs and later on is attacked and raped by Lacey at gunpoint. We arrive back in the present and it's clear that Cinder and Ash have lost their man. Ash tells her that they have to find this girl. Cinder remembers how they've been hired to find Jennifer and Ash wonders how it all fits together. We'll find out. We'll find him and this time I won't let that bastard get away alive, Cinder says while Lacey watches from afar. Book two opens with Lacey roughing up someone for information, wanting to know where his friends took a girl. The guy, tied up and full of panic, tells him that he doesn't know where the guys took the girl because he, he was wasted. Lacey gets ready to leave and the guy says, You can't leave me like this, man. Lacey agrees and blows his head off. Senator Nash look for Jennifer. Lacey follows them. They head to Tulane where they talk to some of her friends and her roommate. Her friends that say that Jenny seemed fine the night she disappeared, although she was a little tense about her boyfriend wanting to spend the night. Another student says that she saw Jenny in the French Quarter and she got into a van with the words Iron Rose written on the side, which was driven by a guy with a huge face tattoo. Ash sees a mother reading to her son out of a book of local legend superstition. He flashes back to 1952 and his upbringing on the bayou. He's a little kid. He wants his father, his adopted father, because his natural father had died in Korea, to tell him some of the same sort of stories. That same man will also tell him how to fish. Cinder has a date with a guy named Winston McKenzie. He's apparently this guy they she went out with in college. He's been bugging him her to marry him since they were in college. She's all business, though. Asking about the financial background, check she asked him to run on Will Starger. He says that Starger has some powerful enemies, although their exact identities are not clear because it's all done through dummy corporations. McKenzie is distracted by a light that's shining in his eyes, and then he's shot right through the head. Lacey has taken him out. Ash is looking through the Algiers neighborhood and notices a young man soliciting a prostitute. He thinks back to 1967 when he was about to ship off to Vietnam. He talks to his father, who gives him a fishing lure, saying, I hear there are many river in Vietnam. A year later, he's in Vietnam, and we flash back again to the moment where he rescued Cinder and how she was in shock at the hospital. 
Back in the present, Ash finds the Iron Rose van slashes its tires. The generic 1980s street punks who own the van flip out and begin asking him if he slashed the tires. He said, yeah, he did it to get their attention. The leader, a big guy with a purple face tattoo that looks like the Batman symbol. Seriously, it does. He almost looks like the leader of the Sons of Batman at the end of The Dark Knight Returns. Pokes him and says... You'll get my attention in, my, in your face, you. And before he can finish his sentence, Ash breaks his wrist. He takes out most of the punks easily and asks face ta- tattoo, his name is Davey, where Jennifer Starger is. This leads to the tenement where issue two began and finds the corpse of the guy Lacey had iced. Back at their place, he and Cinder look over the evidence while Lacey watches from afar. Ash visits the woman that he and Cinder had rescued at the beginning of part one, saying that he thinks the men who kidnapped her kidnapped Jennifer. She says she doesn't remember, and then tells Ash that she's going to divorce her husband because he beat her for a very long time, and she thanks him for bringing her to the place where she's staying instead of to her husband. She then mentions the place in the bayou where they kept her. Lacey continues to follow. In Iowa, Cinder Cinder researches public records for Egeria Enterprises, which she discovers is a shell corporation. She then looks through Starger's personal records and discovers that the DMV records and Starger's name from 1978 are all missing. She calls Ash and he says he'll meet her and they'll talk about it when she gets home. The next time we see them, it's in the bayou, and the two of them are quietly making their way to the shack where Mrs. Kaplan, from the beginning of the series, had said she had been kept. This reminds Ash of the Nam and the Tet Offensive where he and his unit were ambushed. The carnage he witnessed in the Nam mirrors what they find at the shack. Dead bodies everywhere, more than likely courtesy of Lacey. They find Jenny. She's naked and prone, laying in a pool of her own blood. In Vietnam and now, Ash fires off several rounds from his rifle in frustration and agony. Cinder does her best to comfort him. Book 3 opens in Iowa at the funeral for Jennifer Starger. Cinder and Ash are both there as is Lacey, who is watching from a distance through the scope of a high-powered rifle. As the guests leave the funeral, Lacey shoots Starger, and Cinder and Ash spring into action, loading Starger into their pickup truck in an effort to get him to the hospital before he bleeds out. Lacey fires up a couple of shots and miss that miss, and Cinder shoots back, mostly out of frustration. Cinder is pissed off and feels helpless, something she hates. They both know that they have to find Lacey. Ash flashes back to 1969 and his return home from Vietnam. He stays in the army, but is haunted by the memory of that red-headed girl in 1968. Back in the now, Cinder and Ash go through Starger's personal records, searching for clues as to what was going on in 1978. She figures that Lacey was probably hired to frighten Starger by kidnapping Jenny, but it got out of control. Ash finds something and they head to a local gas station, waking up the old man named Gasper, who is the owner. They have a receipt for body work that he did back in 1978 for Starger, and unfortunately Wolf Starger's file is empty, so whoever has been erasing that year has been incredibly thorough. We flash back to Saigon in 1975. Ash is assisting the evacuation of the embassy. He spots a little girl, not Cinder, mind you, but someone who reminds him of Cinder. This causes him to leave the embassy grounds and head into the city to look for her, to see if he could possibly find her. In the present, Cinder talks to Starger at the hospital while Ash mopes around and thinks he sees Lacey. Starger starts talking. In 1978, he was driving along a road where he came upon two hitchhikers. He was stopping to pick them up and get them out of the rain when another car traveling very fast and out of control careened toward his pickup, killing the two hitchhikers and crashing into the pickup. 
The car drove off, and he never knew who was behind the wheel. He has, however, never forgotten those two kids. In 1975, we see the whorehouse where Cinder is living in utter chaos as Saigon falls. Lacey's drunk and gives her a goodbye kiss before Cinder heads into Khan's room. She watches Khan slit her own throat and then picks up the blade and goes after Lacey. She finds him on the street and attacks him. He shoots her in the shoulder and even though he's so drunk he can barely stand, he aims the pistol at her, but before he can pull the trigger, he's shot in the head by Ash. Ash takes Cinder out of Saigon. In the hospital, Cinder and Ash are both looking around and don't find anyone but each other. They decide to go off and see the sheriff about the accident in 1978. They run the plate that Starger said was on the car. Legal. And it comes up as having been registered to Harrison Wayne, a congressman who is the frontrunner on the Senate case. He's very powerful, and he's virtually untouchable. And Cinder responds, he was. The fourth and final book in the series takes us to Washington, D.C., where Harrison Wayne is on Capitol Hill answering questions. He spots Cinder and Ash and is alarmed, especially when he realizes that Ash is following him. Ash lets Wayne lose him, although Cinder is sitting in his living room waiting for him. She says that they are going to meet at the Washington Monument that night at midnight to have a little chat about an accident in 1978. Panicked, Wayne calls his benefactor, Douglas, to tell him what's going on. Douglas stays calm and tells Lacey, saying that bitch from New Orleans finally made contact. Midnight. The Washington Monument. Ash approaches Wayne. Wayne asks what Ash has to show him, and Ash wants to know how he knows his name. Lacey then fires a warning shot, and the chase is on. Wayne sprints to his car and takes off with Ash hanging onto the roof. Lacey is about to take another shot, but is surprised by a shot fired by Cinder, who begins chasing him. Wayne speeds down Pennsylvania Avenue with Ash clinging to the roof of his car, and as he holds on for dear life, he thinks of how he brought Cinder home with him in 1975. She didn't have the easiest time growing up being mixed Vietnamese. She often had to put up with prejudice from other students and was not afraid to fight them, especially one time in college when a girl stole the purple heart Cinder wore as a necklace, one that was given to her by Ash. The girl claimed that a, quote, gook like her should not be wearing a purple heart. Cinder follows Lacey along the reflecting pool toward the Lincoln Memorial while Ash continues to hang onto Wayne's car, finally getting his hands on the steering wheel and causing it to crash into a lamppost. Wayne gets out and Ash grabs him, screaming that he's going to get him to talk. Meanwhile, Cinder thinks about how Lacey clearly doesn't want her dead at the moment, or at least doesn't want to kill her from afar. If he did, he would have done it two weeks ago. She flashes back to the time when she was at Tulane and was dealing with the fallout over the fight with the other girl about the Purple Heart. Ash comes to her rescue then, and as they walk across campus, she asks them why he does all these things for her. He implies that it's a way for him to pay his debts, because while it's too late for a number of soldiers he knew, it's not too late for her. She asks if he wants to sleep with her, and he snaps at her, If you don't understand me better than that by now, you never will. Maybe you never understand anyone. Back at the Lincoln Memorial, Cinder taunts Lacey while Ash drives Wayne through Washington, and, and Wayne confesses to everything. We flash to 1984 when Cinder graduates from Tulane. At the party later, she and Ash go for a walk, and when he asks her what's up, she kisses him passionately. He returns it, and as things start to go a little further, he stops. It's here where she realizes it wouldn't work, and that all along he really is a friend. She asks him never to leave her, and he says he won't. In the present, we've arrived at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. 
Ash and Wayne get out of the car and walk toward the wall. A shot rings out, and Wayne screams to Lacey that it's him, Harrison Wayne. Unfortunately, Wayne runs into the, right into the line of fire, and Lacey says, Shit, but that's going to cost me. That's the last thing you'll have to worry about, you son of a bitch. Cinder yells, and she attacks him. We have one final flashback to 1986, when Cinder and Ash come up, up with the idea for their private investigation business. In the present, we build toward our climax, and Lacey and Cinder fight against the wall, with Cinder not giving up and attacking him viciously. Lacey whips out a knife and cuts at her, but she gets control of it and plunges it into his throat. He bleeds out all over the wall and the sidewalk as she watches. An epilogue. Harrison, Wayne, and Lacey are dead. Douglas, who is Harrison's benefactor, is going to prison for conspiracy charges. Starger is better and released from the hospital. The day of his release, they wish him good luck. When they are alone, Cinder breaks down crying, even though she's afraid to because she's, a, she's afraid Ash might leave her because of that. He holds her, and it's understood that, no, him leaving is not going to happen. She won't be alone. I'll be the first to fully admit that I more or less stumbled onto this one. During the time the Conroy Crossover podcast was being put together, Jerry Conway has a long story career writing superheroes. I've read quite a number of his stories. The issues of Fear of the Firestorm, some of his Batman work, some of his work in The Amazing Spider-Man. But knowing that I am mandating this podcast miniseries to cover non-superhero comics, I did some digging and saw this as one of his credits. The name sounded familiar, and I think it was because I had seen some house ads for the series and some of the issues of the new Teen Titans that I have from around the same time. This wasn't ever very hard to come by either. Now, it has been collected in trade paperback, and that trade paperback came out in 2014. And taking a glance at the cover, it actually looks like the trade's been maybe touched up a little bit, recolored. If you're not in the mood to spend the money on a trade, though, you can probably get this in the cheap bin. I managed to snag all four issues from a 50-cent box. $2, by the way, which was well spent. This is one of several series that DC was publishing at the time that were slightly outside the company's usual line of comics, and a series that also bore the suggested for mature readers warning. These two elements would be a contributing factor to what would eventually become Vertigo about four or five years later, but here we are still in the middle of DC's more experimental phase with what they would sell exclusively to comic book stores. Some such, such as Hellblazer, obviously work, others notoriously tanked, such as Sonic Disruptors. Cinder and Ash fall clearly into the middle of that. To my knowledge, Conway never followed up on the characters, and they don't really get mentioned, and they don't have another series after this. But that's not to say this wasn't a good series, because it really was. In fact, this is one of the best late 80s, early 90s action movies I've ever seen. Conway gives us all the tropes. The grizzled vet with the Vietnam flashbacks, his scrappy sidekick, the crooked politician, the dangerous wildcard ex-CIA guy... The case that becomes more and more involved, the deeper and deeper our heroes get. Yes, there are elements of this that are incredibly predictable, that all of this was connected, was pretty obvious from the beginning. But they all work because that's, well, that's what I want from a story like this, to be honest with you. I did my recap talking about all four books at once because that's how it reads. Conway does a great job of pacing these four issues so that we're getting something really good in each issue yet they all feel like one cohesive whole. The flashbacks, and there are many, are for the most part well-placed and well-paced. I wasn't a fan of the one that he stuck right in the middle of the climactic knife fight in Washington, D.C., 
but for the most part, they all fit the story very well. Our MacGuffin, Starger's daughter, is a realistic way to draw both Cinder and Ash into the much larger intrigue of the crooked politician trying to cover up his past sins with help from scumball people in Washington. Our two heroes are simply doing their job. It's the involvement of Lacey, whom we know right off the bat is important to both of them, that makes it personal, especially for Cinder. That was a hard scene to get through, by the way. Even if it was necessary to the plot. Having Lacey rape Cinder years earlier when she was still in Saigon was brutal, and I do not like seeing rape in comics. It wholly informs Cinder's motivation for hating him to the point where she will slash his throat on a national memorial. Granted, it's the middle of the night, but it's a vicious fight that matches the tone and intensity of that scene. A scene that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, makes uncomfortable to see it as it is to read. On page 24 of issue 1, we have this close-up shot of Lacey's hand over Cinder's mouth, then the same shot just a little further away, and then the same shot even further away as we see that he's literally on top of her. She bites his fingers and he takes out a gun, puts it at her head, and page 25 is a splash of her on the floor screaming while he is right on top of her. We can only see their upper bodies, and Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, makes sure to show us that Cinder is in obvious pain especially in the four small panels on the right-hand side of page 25, which is a menacing extreme close-up of Lacey's face and then three separate close-ups of Cinder crying. And the whole thing's over by page 26 when we're back in the present with a close-up of Cinder sitting on a street corner and crying to herself. That scene is effective and informs you of how evil a villain this man is and is yet another thing in a list of events and circumstances that informs us to why Cinder is so tough and not even trusting of everybody. She's clearly the star of this whole series, and a great one at that. Had this been a movie, it would have been a great vehicle for an actress who wanted to do an action flick and not have to be the love interest. Conway and Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, give us a woman who really doesn't put up with anyone's crap and goes toe-to-toe with every character in the series. In fact, it's she who takes out the bad guy at the end while her partner goes after the congressman and gets the confession that he needed. Usually, it's the opposite. Ash as a character is probably the weakest part of the series, and that might be because of the fact that Conway tries to write him with a Cajun accent that can get pretty annoying at times. I didn't try to imitate it when I read his dialogue, sorry. It honestly gets in the way. Because otherwise, he's a really well-written character. The Vietnam flashbacks, the fact that meeting Cinder when she was a girl haunted him for years until he had the opportunity to do something about it. Show a compassion-caring friend, even a father figure. And Conway has that great flashback in issue four where Cinder throws herself at Ash, and he stops it because he realizes how wrong that would be. Lesser writers would have let that happen and would have dropped so many hints as them being in love with one another, or whatever you want to say about it for three issues prior to that moment. Instead, he's built up a true partnership and a friendship and intends to let that play out, especially in the end where he more or less promises he'll always be there. That relationship being the core of this story works very well because Conway writes Cinder and Ash as two people who obviously have a great chemistry between the two of them. I get the sense that Ash is clearly haunted by his past and Cinder continues to give him a sense of purpose and a sense of hope. The scene at the end of the issue 2 where they find Jenny's body in a position that is absolutely just disgusting triggers, no pun intended, a reaction to him that is the same one as the flashback to the slaughtered GIs that he sees in his head. 
It's a time where a climactic scene and an issue being intermingled with flashbacks works very well in this series. Suppose the Cinder's flashbacks to her past when she's fighting Lacey at the end of book four, which I think, you know, that could have just benefited from just a straight-up fight. Conway makes us like the characters, and he makes us like the characters right off the bat, and as he mixes in those backstory flashbacks, he gets us to care about the characters as much as we care about what happens to them. I'm sure he could have spent an entire issue on just the backstory of Cinder and Ash, which is something that other writers have done from time to time. Remember, Marv Wolfman interrupted the Judas contract to tell us the complete origin of Deathstroke. That still worked, though. Here, Conway shows he has to be judicious, because we're not previously engaged with these characters the same way we would be with the Titans, or Superman, or Batman, or Spider-Man. So he gives it to us in pieces, as well as other important events happen. It's a great idea, and for the most part, is well done. I've already heaped praise upon Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, but I have to heap some more praise on him because of the fact that this series wouldn't be as great as it is if not for his artwork. He imbues Cinder with a sexiness that is right, it's the right blend of youth and the right blend of experience, but never makes her vulgar. He makes Lacey look exactly like the scum that he is, and he's got Ash looking like this grizzled old George Papard type, you know, and the 80s action flick mainstay. All he needs is a cigar in his mouth. His action is well comp- composed. He takes full advantage of multi-panel pages, and he delivers this gorgeous splash at the moment where Lacey slides down the wall with blood pouring out of his jugular while an exhausted cinder just stands over him, her shoulder bleeding. If there's one downside to the artwork, honestly, it might be the coloring job. This might be a limitation to the coloring from back in 1988, but since Cinder is a redhead who's half Asian, Joe Orlando, for some reason, took that to mean that her skin should be more orange than anyone else's. Sometimes it simply looks like she has a slightly darker complexion than everyone else in the scene, but there are other times where Cinder looks like she's Starfire and Blackfire's long-lost sister. It actually makes me want to check out the trade paperback to see if there was recoloring done on the interior and what that looked like because the cover is definitely recovered and I don't know, maybe they've toned down that skin tone issue with better coloring techniques nowadays. But it's a nitpick. I had fun with this series. It's a great little crime drama. I can see where Conway started writing for Law and Order down the line. And this definitely would have been at home at the multiplex back in like the late summer of 88. It's a lost gem, and I highly recommend checking it out. And next up, I'll be back in late June for a look at some classic and new Funny Animals comics. So please follow the hashtag ConwayXOver to see what other fine podcasts are also talking about Jerry Conway's career and the issue at hand with DC Comics. Also head over to the Fire and Water podcast to download their interview, which was phenomenal. It was great, it was informative, and I'm so glad they did that. I hope you enjoyed this look at Cinder and Ash. I'll see you next month. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks.
All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.